This episode contains material that might be triggering for some. If you need to stop the podcast at any time to take care of yourself, please do so. If you need support, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. Dialectical Behavior Therapy was created in the 1980s by Marsha Linehan in Seattle, Washington. Today, DBT is taught all over the world. We're two therapists who believe everyone can benefit from DBT skills. I'm Kate. I'm Michelle. And And this this is is DBT and Me. Hello, everyone. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Q&A number 48. Yes. They like the number of contiguous states. What? Uh Aha. Yeah, the contiguous. Yeah, the ones that all touch each other, right? Uh, Not Alaska, not Hawaii, the contiguous (laughs) United States. I've never heard the word contiguous before. (laughs) Oh, okay. I'm like, not for this. I'm like, I swear that's how I was taught to think of them. Like, the, is the, because for instance, I, Washington State has the only um, rainforest in the contiguous United States. Not in the United States, because there's rainforests in Hawaii. And now we're talking about very strange things. Pardon me and my obvious distractibility. The- <laughs> I like it. Anyway, it 48. Like the states that are all connected. There we go. <laughs> Um, but yeah. All right. Well, then you kick us off with a short, but I think actually powerful question. Yes, it is short, but powerful. So this one says, how can feelings be valid and not last forever? I hope that makes sense. It absolutely does. I will admit it didn't to the very first moment I read through it. And then I went, oh, I totally get it. Because I think the idea, and you correct me, or not correct me, tell me if you interpreted this differently, Michelle. But Mm -hmm. Um, I just took that to mean like, well, if a feeling is valid, why would I ever not feel that same way? Maybe about a thing or why would that feeling end? Right. Um, Which I think is a great question. Not one I had ever thought of, but a fantastic question. Um, You're going to go into wonderful things um, in your answer. So I wanted to just pick out a couple of things that I didn't see you mentioning when I read through the notes. Can anyone tell that Michelle got to the notes first this time? I think sometimes we talk enough about that (laughs) that they can tell. Um, So my first one is the 90 seconds rule. Um, Information? I love this idea. So basically the chemical cascade slash electrical signals that go on in the brain that cause an emotion. If there is no further triggering of that emotional state, um, an emotion lasts 90 seconds. Maximum. 90 seconds uh and that's but that doesn't make it not valid right there are so many things in this world that are brief but still real still valid still worth inquiry still worth acting on still worth right there's so many things and again you know michelle you're going to talk about some of why um emotions change but i did just want to put out there that the like physiological or a physiological reason that even the most valid of emotion doesn't last forever is because eventually you're not going to be triggering that feeling anymore. And as soon as you stop either internally with your own thoughts or being in an external situation that is triggering that emotion, um, then 
it's going to be gone in 90 seconds. <laughs> Right. Um, but that's just human physiology. Right. And isn't a reflection of the validity or lack of validity um, of the emotions involved. I don't know why this is the example that uh, occurred to me, but I thought of a solar eclipse. Right. Something that doesn't take a long time. Right. It's relatively momentary, but real and valid and spectacular and right, like all of these different things. So I was just trying to conceive of, yeah, other things that are brief but impactful. Um, mm -hmm. which I certainly think of feelings as being sometimes brief. Sometimes I wish more brief, but uh, <laughs> certainly impactful. So yeah, those were my first thoughts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I read this question, I was trying to condense down a lot of what we talked about in way back when in our Emotions 101 episodes. Oh, yeah. Right? Because <laughs> yep. we recorded two of those, so we had a lot of information to give. But what were really the main takeaways and what applies to this listener's question? So one of them, which you just talked about really nicely, Kate, is the 90-second rule, as we call it. That that's how long physiologically emotions will last in our bodies, um, independent of the thoughts that are making them happen. But one thing that I wanted to share is that the way that feelings work, you could say, the way that they unfold is that something happens, anything, doesn't have to be something major, something big, just something happens and something is happening really at all times <laughs> around us. Something happens, then we have a thought about that thing that just happened, and then we feel an emotion after that thought. That's how it goes. And this can happen very, 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 very quickly um, to sometimes where we don't really know what we've consciously thought before we're already feeling the emotion. But as Kate was explaining, because your thought comes first and your thought is what triggers the feeling, thoughts can continue to trigger feelings over and over again, or it may trigger it just very quickly and then the feeling goes. Um, so what we think really determines what we feel. And yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why our feelings don't last forever is because our thoughts are shifting a lot. So if you change the thought that you're having about a thing that just happened, the emotion is then going to shift along with it. Um, this is not simple. <laughs> this is not easy uh necessarily it's not as it's not as straightforward in real life as like oh well just tell yourself to think this and then the emotion just evaporates not always but if you start to really rewire those neural connections in your brain and really put forth effort to think something different the emotion will change so that's one explanation for why feelings don't last forever um and another reason why they don't last forever but can also still be valid is because life is just changing around us all the time. Um, so in many cases, right, with that idea I just talked about, about how something happens, we think something, we feel something, that's something happening. It, when that changes, then we start to have new thoughts, that we start to have new feelings. And so it's like the feeling is valid in that moment, when that thing is happening. But then when life shifts, when something new happens, and then you have new thoughts and the new feelings that follow, well, those feelings are just as valid. But we're constantly 
kind of adapting and going with the flow of life and the circumstances around us, whether we like those circumstances or whether we don't, we're just constantly trying to adapt to that. And so our emotions change in response. So that's why they don't last forever because nothing really stays the same forever. Nothing is, nothing is permanent. Um, so therefore our, our feelings can't be either. The only permanent thing is change or the only guaranteed yep. thing is change. Something like that. Exactly. Um, yeah. It's totally sure, like, It doesn't last forever because nothing lasts forever. Yep. Um, <laughs> but uh, except for change. So no, that makes sense. All right. Are we on to the next one? Yeah. Let's go for it. All right. This one says, I need help to kickstart doing my DBT consciously again. I am feeling really disillusioned with people at the moment. I have also told a friend, who was also a favorite person, um, of over five years to leave me alone as the friendship was quite uneven. That was 10 days ago and they have left me alone, but I can't make myself quite feel okay about it all. Thanks. Mm-hmm. When I read this, I saw two parts to this. So one part is how do I kickstart doing my DBT again? And then the other part is addressing mm. what's going on with this friendship. Um, and I actually really just picked up on this now, hearing you read it again, Kate, but with that sentence at the end of, but I can't make myself quite feel okay about it all. This feels important to name is that I don't think DBT or the goal of DBT is to feel okay about things that hurt. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that that's the goal. Like the goal isn't to have it be that like, okay, I just feel joy all the time, always about everything, Mm -hmm. even really hard things. I managed to find a way to feel joy. No, like you don't, you don't have to feel okay about it all. So I'm going to circle back around to that, but (laughs) I just wanted to clarify that, that I think sometimes people can have that goal of like, I'm going to do DBT and then when hard things happen, I won't feel emotions about it anymore. And that's not the goal of DBT. Um, So dialing it back to the beginning, I need help to kickstart doing my DBT consciously again. The first thing that came to mind for me is to pick a skill of the week or pick a skill of the day, whatever feels good to you and focus on that skill. So this can look like if you want to working through the DBT skills, I suppose you could say in order though, there isn't really a true order, (laughs) but picking a skill and saying this week, that's the skill I'm going to work on, right? This week, my skill is say opposite action. So I'm going to really make sure that I am trying to find opportunities to practice opposite action during my week. That can be one way to do it. Or again, if you're waking up in the morning and you're looking ahead at what you have planned for that day or what's coming up, think about what DBT school you could really use on that particular day and put your energy towards that skill. That's one strategy. But in general, when it comes to people saying that they want to get back into using their DBT skills again, above and beyond, what I recommend first and foremost is to get back to mindfulness and wise mind. So if nothing else, again, you can try that strategy I just named of consciously picking a skill to focus on for a week or focus on for that day. Another way to approach this is just to say, I want to get back to practicing mindfulness. I want to get back in touch with my wise mind. 
So I'm going to spend as much time focusing on mindfulness as I need to until I feel like that's become a good habit again. I'm going to spend some time really trying to think about what would wise mind do here when I'm facing difficult moments. And I'm going to work on that. And maybe you work on that for a couple days to a week and you're like, all right, I'm feeling pretty good about it. Or you might spend months there. Months. (laughs) Trying to really get back in touch with mindfulness. But that is 100% practicing DBT. And I would rather you spend a lot of time on mindfulness and get really rooted in that again than try to whip through all the DBT skills and check them all off. I wouldn't recommend that. Um, So really make sure that no matter what approach you take, you're taking your time and not trying to go through it too quickly. Um, Going back to the piece about losing your favorite person and how hard that is and how you don't feel okay about it. Yeah, it just, it makes sense that you don't feel okay about it, listener. I mean, this person has been in your life for five years And it was only 10 days ago that you ended that relationship with them. Of course, you're not going to feel okay because you're grieving. Um, And so I would say your emotion fits the facts here, right? That emotion of sadness, that fits the facts. Um, And so a lot of this is probably going to be in terms of practicing DBT. It's going to be figuring out what it looks like to be with your sadness, Not to make the sadness go away, but to be with it and to use skills that will help you like continue to function and go through your life and do what you need to do. Um, But also to be really kind to yourself with the sadness that you're feeling. And there are definitely DBT skills to help you like sit with that sadness too, Mm -hmm. right? So um, yeah, I don't want you to feel okay about it all. And I know that may sound weird, but it would be really strange if you already felt okay about it all. So that's what I think. Yeah, I like that. I do think that if you told the me that was in school to become a therapist how much of our jobs would revolve around telling people that it's okay to not be okay, I don't know if I would have believed you. Um, yep. Right? But it is, right? And it makes sense, right? That this person is still having a hard time and grieving. Mm-hmm. Um Going back to the kickstarting doing DBT consciously again, I've always liked, Michelle, your idea of like picking one a day or picking one a week, um, which is great. Uh, I will say you might want to set reminders because I can have all sorts of lovely intentions when I wake up in the morning that maybe become sad regrets at the end of the day when I go, oh, shit, I didn't ever do any of that. Right. Intentions do not a memory make for me. Um, I forget to do stuff all the time. Um, So setting reminders, that can look like a lot of different things, right? You could put literal sticky notes up in places where you see them. You could set alarms on your phone. Um, Michelle and I just did the research for (laughs) an episode on uh, DBT apps. So that's fresh on my brain. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was actually thinking um, that, that same thing. I was like, oh, this right? app will remind you. That right, was exactly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, there are, there are definitely DBT apps out there that, you know, will have the list of all the skills and remind you to use them and things like that. So there's a lot of different ways to get that notification, that reminder, that nudge in that direction. Um, and it's okay to need that. 
right? Especially when you haven't been doing it consciously for a while, right? So trying to be kind to yourself about utilizing those and being willing to, you know, look outside of your own impetus for getting uh, those reminders. Um, I think you kind of touched on this in a couple of different ways, Michelle, but I did think it was really important for this listener to meet themselves where they were uh, when it comes to the skills. So uh, I liked how you emphasized that you might, you know, get good at whatever skill you're trying in a day or two, or it might take months. Um, I was thinking of it a little bit more with like, what is just what's serving this person the most right now, Mm -hmm. right? So if that looks like changing the skill you're focusing on in the day, between days, week to week or whatever, then that makes sense. Um, If you're like, well, I picked focusing on Deer Man this week, but I'm alone in a cabin without (laughs) reception. Uh, Oh, well, guess I just don't practice Deer Man on this skill this week. Right. Trying to, you know, match your circumstances and also what your needs are. Right. And what you would get the most benefit out of. So maybe that looks like changing the skills with some regularity. Maybe that looks like sticking with one for a while. Right? Because that is just the one you find helps the most. Or that's the one you feel like is uh, one you're struggling with the most. So you want to focus with on it until it feels really solid. Or, right? So just a lot of meeting yourself where you are, shifting or sticking with skills, as, you know, as best meets your needs for meeting yourself where you are. Um, and don't be afraid to farm out memory to devices or items or apps. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to remember in life these days. (laughs) I I think needing lists has stopped being weird. (laughs) Lists or reminders. So yeah, those are my thoughts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. Um, Also, before I read the next one, I mean, we put a trigger warning at the beginning of the episode. And, you know, we make a note in the show notes of like the time when stuff may be triggering if people want to skip ahead. But this next one may be a little triggering for people. So if you want to hit that like 30 second skip button, uh, you can go ahead and do that. It's pretty short. Um, But it says, I keep thinking about suicide for a while now. I blocked my family hoping that could help myself heal better because they're all toxic. I have no real friends I can trust because I keep being rude to everyone. I don't have anyone that makes my life worth living. So what should I do? Oof. And ouch. So the first thing I think is just, I don't know, not a, well, <laughs> we were just talking about how thoughts come first, but realistically, how I experience it is just a feeling first, which is just a lot of empathy and, uh, you know, a desire to validate how hard being in that space is. Um, I, you know, have a lot of familiarity with long-term suicidal ideation and I know I know how exhausting it is to just go through life in that state so I before anything else I just want to tell the listener that I'm sorry that they're in that spot and that I understand and I'm glad they reached out um so that's uh, just valid lot hordes of validation and empathy <laughs> um, to start off with. Uh, but then there were a few things that stuck, stuck, stood out to me. Um, 
And the first one was, I don't have anyone that makes my life worth living. And that made me curious uh, how this listener is defining a life worth living. Um, pardon a, a short detour, but uh, this really got me thinking about there was a there was a class that I took in my undergraduate when I was getting my philosophy degree that was called the philosophy of a good life. Um, and it was really tackling the question of what is necessary and sufficient to create a life worth living. They didn't use that exact phrasing, but that's that's a lot of what that not a lot. That was the entirety of what that class was about. You also only had to write two papers, which was answering the question twice what your ideas were when you came into the class and how if they had changed at the end. I love that class a lot. Um, and it brought up a lot of really great questions that no one in that class had fucking thought about before. And it gave me a lot of curiosity, right? Um, and so I, you know, that line of I, you know, I don't have anyone that makes my life worth living. I got curious about, like, are other people how you derive a life worth living? Like, is that where a life worth living comes from? And is it the only place that a life worth living does or can come from? Is it an element of what makes up a life worth living to the listener? And could there be other arenas to focus in that are more available right now than other people seem to be in their world? Um, I just think I, I would invite the listener, and really <laughs> any listeners, um, to really spend some time with the question of what is a life worth living for them? Um, and that's because that's going to differ wildly person to person. Um, that said, I, I get my, my little therapist heart gets concerned if other people are the entirety of where someone is finding a life worth living. Um, because you don't have control over other people. Like at all. And so that's a lot to put into a basket that you don't carry. Um, and so that makes me, that concerns me, that worries me, right? Because that's, that's an easy place to feel powerless, right? And um, feeling powerless is not a good antidote to suicidal ideation, right? Um, so while, I would, I would invite this listener to examine the question of what makes a life worth living with a special focus on finding things that are at least potentially within their control. Right? What are things that make a life worth living that don't rely on the actions of others? Um, because that's a dangerous uh, foundation right? to build on. Not saying that people are untrustworthy. Like this is not this is not an anti-people thing. <laughs> people are wonderful and important and necessary for most of us in our lives on a regular basis, um, and they aren't ours to control or predict. Right. So that's my first thought is. Uh, look at that and see if you can find other things, right? Not just people. Um, as for what to do, I do, uh, you know, I know I have seen, at least in our area, um, well, all right, before the pandemic, I guess I don't know if these are happening <laughs> right now, um, but like classes run by therapists or life coaches or other things on social interaction, right? On being better at socializing. Um, some people are just socially awkward as fuck. Uh, many of them are some of my best friends. <laughs> um, and, you know, if it's something where you feel like you're literally lacking the skills, which can be the case, uh, you know, what do you do when you lack skills most of the time? You do 
You know, you get taught in some fashion, either through your own research or through a teacher, right? Um, and then just because, you know, I always like to try and throw DBT into the mix somewhere. Uh, when I think about what to do for trying to add, like, trustworthy, fulfilling connections into life um, through whatever means or whatever weight's being put on those things uh, is give, right? Just give skills. Moving through the world that way can feel weird and alien and constraining and all sorts of things, right? If you're just like, nope, I'm just, I'm just in give mode. It can feel weird. And also you're a lot less likely to be rude. You're a lot less likely to push people away, right? Give is in essence, an invitation, right? Um, and it, it sounds like you want to make an invitation, but are struggling with how. So um, I think give, it's, sometimes there's just a skill that is absolutely perfect. Not always, <laughs> but sometimes. Um, and give seems absolutely perfectly suited to this particular individual's relational struggles. Um, I'm not saying, you know, that I, here you go, Michelle, as you were talking about seeing two parts of this, I see like the suicidality thing and like the socializing thing. And I see mm. that the person is tying those things together, but I'm hoping to separate them out a little bit mm -hmm. right, when, as possible because um, other people are unpredictable yeah. <laughs> and, um, and uncontrollable. So yeah, mm -hmm. those are, those are basically my thoughts. Yeah. Great thoughts. Um, and I think, yeah, we're going to touch on different things in different ways in, in what the <laughs> listener posted. But one thing I thought about while you were talking, because I absolutely agree that learning to socialize is a skill. It's not something we are born knowing how to do. We learn it um, by the people around us. And another great resource could be the website succeedsocially.com. Oh, that's right. I remember you I mentioning that before. Socially. I forgot I it. about it. So go on there, listener. Um, especially if you can't find, like, I'm with, I'm with what you said, Kate, that, like, if you can find an in-person group to yeah. practice with people, that's ideal. And if you can't find that in your area, I would recommend going to succeedsocially.com because you can find some good resources there and some good tips. Um... I totally agree with what you're talking about, Kate, about how it's really important to make sure when it comes to that idea of a life worth living that you are building things into your life that don't really have to do with other people, that are not dependent on others because we can't control other people. So you are spot on. And I'm glad that you focused on that because I thought of this a totally different way or like I focused <laughs> on something different, even though I agree with you completely. And we're not saying different things. Um, we're just saying, I'm saying something additionally, I guess, to what you were saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is like, um, I glommed on to the sentence here of, I blocked my family hoping that could help myself heal better because they're all toxic. And I mm -hmm. hear this a lot. I hear this a lot um, from clients who I'm working with or, you know, just people I know in my life where they're like, yeah, I'm setting boundaries and I'm blocking people. And don't get me wrong, that can be healthy and that can be needed. So I'm not telling you all to not <laughs> block people out of your life <laughs> who are toxic. However, here is the flip side of that, which is that 
if we try to exist in a bubble, oftentimes that's just going to make us more unhappy. So sometimes what I see happen is that people, as they start on their healing journey, they start, yep, reducing interactions or blocking people in their life where the relationship has not been the healthiest. And then before they know it, they're looking around going, oh shit, I don't have anybody left. Um, and that grass isn't always greener. Like again, I'm not saying to keep unhealthy people around in your life, but as Kate was kind of touching on, we want to make sure that you are having interactions with people that like are healthy. And that's why like give could help and classes could help and all of that. Because I, I worry that a little bit that that's what's happened for this listener is that they've blocked everybody and now they're going, uh-oh, <laughs> I'm completely <laughs> alone and that's leading me to feel really hopeless and that's leading me to question big things in my life. So what do you do about this? You do what Kate was suggesting of trying to find healthier people and trying to improve your social skills. But another thing that I thought about to tack on to that is that like, we can feel connected to animals. We can feel connected to nature. We don't, like, we do need people. We do. <laughs> um, even if it's just to, again, like, help us with tasks and things we need in our lives. Like, we need people. But if you're really struggling to connect to people, maybe a place to start is to connect to animals or nature. Um, whatever that looks like for you. Um, gosh, if you have the means and if you haven't already, get a pet, get a creature of some kind to, to take care of. I don't care what kind of pet, but find an animal that you can connect to. If connecting to nature really sings to you, see what you can do to find hikes or parks in your area and get out of your house. So those can be things that might lead to creating a life worth living that, as Kate was talking about, don't have anything to do with being dependent on other people. Even though we need other people and it is healthy to try to form those social connections that are good for us, if that's like a really high bar for you to set, see if you can set that a little lower to start is what was coming up for me. Um, and yeah, in terms of lowering that bar, I mean, when it comes to this DBT concept of a life worth living, we get questions about it, I would say, fairly regularly. It comes up where people are like, how, how, how do I do it? Um, and you start real, real, real small. Um, that's what I think a lot of the times with a life worth living. Um, and the work doesn't stop with a life worth living because what a life worth living looks like today is going to look different 10 years from now. I can guarantee it. Um, so it's constantly evolving and changing what that means for us. And a good place to begin, which I straight up took from Kate. As she said, <laughs> I got to the notes first. So I went, you know what? I'm going to write it down, even though it's Kate's idea. And you all know it's Kate's idea if you've been listening long enough. Um, but the idea of finding the best moment in each day, Kate says this all the time, doesn't have to be good, but what was the best moment in your day? And especially if you take those moments and you start writing them down, um, and again, you don't have to write a lot, sentence, a couple words, <laughs> but if you start documenting that, then you can start looking for patterns. Um, you can look back at the last like 30 days of the month and be like, Okay, so I have 30 moments that I wrote down. Are there any connections here? 
do, what what stands out or what was even the best moment of the month and how can I build off of that? So that's a good place to begin, I think, with creating a life worth living. And also, yeah, um, that whole figuring out who or what you can connect to, I think, would hopefully really help, um, especially in terms of the suicidal thoughts that are coming up for this listener to hopefully help mm-hmm. them keep going. So that's my hope. Yeah. <sighs> okay, we're on to the last one for this last episode. One. Yep. This one says, why does it seem to take people many cycles of DBT to see results? About time someone asked. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I think a lot of people maybe wonder this or a lot of people have heard this. Um, And I will see people in our lovely, wonderful, magical, awesome Facebook community where people are brand new to DBT and they're having questions about it or they're like, this is a lot. I will see people comment and they'll be like, well, I've had to, you know, I've got through DBT like three times. It just like stick in there. And I think people are like, oh, my God, do I really need to do that? <laughs> um, so I think it is up to each individual person to decide how many times to do DBT. Um, most often, Kate and I see people come through one time and we never see them again. Um, however, we have one group participant who I don't know how many cycles she's gone through with us. I think three. she's done every one three or four times. Yeah. Like, and and yeah. it's just a part of her mental health. Yeah. Her maintenance. Yeah. Exactly. She is just kind of like, I want to stay regularly connected to a group and I want to keep these skills fresh in my mind. So I'm just going to keep doing it. And that works too, but that's certainly not the norm. Most people um, go through once, maybe twice, and they call it good. Um, But the reason why some people decide to go through so many cycles um, to see results, which also I think it's important to figure out, like, what are the results that you're hoping for from a group? Um, If you are expecting to go through DBT once, and then after that, you've got it, and you're going to use DBT skills daily for the rest of your life, (laughs) that's probably not going to happen. No matter how good of a DBT group you're in or individual therapist you have, it's that's probably not going to happen. Um, and the reason why is because there's a lot to learn with DBT. I mean, that was the first answer that came to mind for me for this question of just like, there's a lot to learn. There's a lot of skills. There's not five skills. There's not 10 skills. There's a lot of skills. And groups go quickly. You're learning one or more skills per week. So the way that I was kind of thinking of this in my head is like, well, I mean, change takes time in general. But if we're thinking about like you're learning these skills because you're wanting to make a change in your life, the first step is to learn and understand the skills. Like when I say accepts, I want you to know what I mean. You don't have to remember what every single letter stands for, but hopefully you can know at least half the letters and you know what this the overall skill is about. Like if I said, what is accepts for? You could say, oh, it's for distraction, right? So it's like learning that, <laughs> you know, what, what, what is wise mind? I mean, we have people in groups and they will just focus on that the entire time. They're like, wait, you just talked about this idea of wise mind in week two. I got to figure that out. <laughs> and they spend the remaining weeks like really try to use their wise mind every week which is fantastic. I think that's great. Um, But you got to kind of know what the skills are. 
right? What is Dear Man? What is Check the Facts? What is mindfulness? You just kind of got to know. That's the first step. Then the next step is that you actually need to do them. Like, practice them. Try them out in your life. Not just show up to a group and listen and learn, but you have to go do them. And this is, I think, where people sometimes realize, oh, this is tough. (laughs) And I need support around this. Is they go through DBT once and they're like, all right, I get it. I understand. Then they try to do it and they realize it's harder than they thought it would be and they come back. That is pretty common. So that's the second step is then you have to actually do the skills. And I would say the third and final piece is that then you need to try to do them consistently. Not just like, cool, I did a dear man once with my coworker. Awesome. Never going to do dear man again like I did it. (laughs) Great. And then, you know, a couple months later, it's like, oh, God, my roommate's driving me crazy. Oh, oh yeah, that DBT skill. What is it? Oh, yeah, dear man. Oh, ha, mm. <laughs> right? And they're not using it consistently. Like, they know what it is. They know how to do it. But are you using it consistently in your life? And people will talk about this in the group, about how they've gotten to this place where DBT just feels kind of like Habitual. breathing for them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They've just, they've got it down. But I can almost guarantee those people didn't go through DBT just once to get there. So it just depends on what you're wanting. If you're wanting to learn the skills and have the knowledge, one cycle of DBT will maybe be enough to do that. But if your goal is to like really use DBT day in and day out, yeah, that just takes time. That just takes time and repetition. And you probably won't get it from just going through one cycle. So those were my thoughts. Those are all great. Um, I don't have an enormous amount to add. The first thing I was just thinking of was because because they said take people, not take some people or a lot of people. Like, it just seems to take everybody this long. And so <laughs> I just wanted to say that it, in my experience at least, varies wildly, right? On, on so many factors, right? Like, how rough were things for that person when they entered group, right? Like, how steep of a climb was it to get out of where they were, right? Um, How open are people to the idea that DBT might be useful? Uh, Certainly less so since doing it in private practice, but I'm sure, Michelle, you and I had people in the groups in community mental health who were there because they sort of had to be, Mm -hmm. right? Like, (laughs) right? So if people go into, and I know there are definitely hospitalization settings and stuff like that where people end up being forced into DBT and they're like, screw this shit. Like, I have no interest in this. This isn't going to do anything for me. Right? And maybe by their end, they're like, huh, maybe there was something there, but I don't remember it. So they have to go through again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, learning speeds, learning styles, life context, right? What, as Michelle said, what are you hoping to um, get out of DBT, right? Were you going into DBT like, ah, I've got the basics here. I don't have any particular, you know, diagnosable mental illness or trauma or other struggles. I could just use brushing up on some of these skills. These seem useful. Mm, one time might do it. Maybe I might give you a conceptualization or a framework or something. Um, on the other hand, if you're like, I would like to change my life from the bottom up. I, yeah, I go with you, Michelle. I don't think you're going to necessarily do that in one pass. Um, because there is just so fucking much. I mean, I still have to pause and sort of look into the air to list everything and accepts. <laughs> I've been not just doing it, but teaching it for like six years. So um, I think in the end, the thing it comes down to is less about the seeing results and more about the taking in the information. 
I think once you can take in all that information, you can start seeing results. But, you know, there's a lot of things that attenuate how much information someone can take in at any time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Okay, that brings us to the end. So if you have questions, you can send them in an email, dbtandmepodcast at gmail.com, or you can post them in our Facebook group. So you can head on over to your Facebook and search for DBT and Me Podcast, and the group should come right up if you're not already a part of it, and you can post a question there and get feedback from lots of people with what your question is. So yeah, thanks for being here, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Bye. To learn more about us and the DBT skills we're teaching each week, join our Facebook group. Simply log in to your Facebook profile and search for DBT and Me Podcast.